In the reading corner today, my guest is Owen McLaughlin, and he's joining me all the way from Mauritius. Owen is an Irish writer. His debut picture book, illustrated by Polly Dunbar, The Hug, was named Book of the Year by The Guardian, and it was shortlisted for the Children's Book Ireland uh, Book of the Year Awards as well. Two further books featuring Hedgehog and his friends have been published, While We Can't Hug and The Longer We Hug. He's also got a series with Ross Collins, uh, Secret Agent Elephant and Inspector Penguin. And with Mark Butifon, published by Walker Books, we have the case of The Missing Cake, uh, which was published in 2021. And now we have a second book from this creative duo, I Am Not an Octopus. So an intriguing title. Anyway, welcome to In the Reading Corner. Thank you very much for having me, Nikki. I'm excited to be here. One of the things that struck me when I was reading and getting a sense of you as a writer is that these, and I know there are more books than these uh, three series, but they are very distinctive and different voices. If we start with the Hug series, these are really paired back very simple, wonderful. They really touch our hearts. Um, you and Polly together have done an amazing job there. Tell us a little bit about how this series of books came about. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think although they've all kind of come out concurrently, the the Hug series were the last books that I wrote. So the ones I wrote kind of after the others. And I think when I started out, and my natural inclination is to try and just make things out and out as funny as they could be, and probably like a lot of writers, to probably overwrite things a bit. And I think that's probably the zone that the Mark Butavon books are and Secret Elephant. Not to say they're overwritten, but there's you know there's, there there are more words per page, and and just trying to make them as funny as possible. And I think actually the hug ones were an attempt to try and write in a more concise manner. And I think it's a lot more difficult to fit as much emotion and humour into fewer words. And so that's a challenge I've really enjoyed. And to kind of fight my own natural instincts, which is to just try and cram as many jokes in as possible, <laughs> to kind of try and be restrained. Yeah, they're, they're the result of that kind of exercise, I guess. That's interesting because there is humour in the hug books, but it mainly comes through the illustration rather than the text in those books. Yeah, I'd say so. And I think the the tone of them is much more clipped and I'd say the humour is maybe much is more dry than in say I'm not an octopus or um, the Ross Collins books they are more exuberant I would say in their sense of humour and more silly more silly in a way whereas I think the humour that's in the hug ones weirdly although they they are pitched younger the humour that's there for the adults is probably a lot more to do with kind of social awkwardness and mm. Like the idea that you might not want to give someone a hug because it might be unpleasant, you know, they're being a hedgehog is actually funny for adults in a way that kind of talks more about what kind of social situations and anxieties and, and what's polite and what's not polite. I think that's what, where the humour comes from. Whereas in things like I'm Not an Octopus, there's a kind of silliness that might be considered less of a grown-up sense of humour, maybe. So I don't know if you can distinguish. I mean, The Hug was followed by two other books with Hedgehog and Tortoise. Obviously, While We Can't Hug is a pandemic book, isn't it? Or isn't it? Yes. 
I mean, it well, was interestingly, so it was written to be one, but they're um, they're using it now in in prisons in California for inmates to read bedtime stories to their children because that's another group of people who can't hug. So I'm hoping that it finds other other uses. That was one that struck home with me quite powerfully. It's not really something I'd thought about before. And um, those research that the more in prison inmates interact with their families while they're you know in prison, the less likely they are to reoffend. So it's all kinds of interesting, brilliant stuff. That's I've, amazing. I've and I guess also for families that are separated by distance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hoping it has a life beyond the pandemic. But it was definitely written. It was originally designed to just be a PDF that was available. Um, and we did it really quickly. It was kind of six weeks, I think, from keyboard to first copy of the book. So it was like Faber did an amazing job and Polly of producing it so quickly. But mm. it was it was supposed it was very reactive. Yeah. And Polly is so we will talk about your illustrators as well, because Polly is so good at creating character and characters that you want to live with over several books. I mean, Al, who always comes in and sorts things out or, you know, you know, the wise Al. Uh, but even, you know, the animals like rabbits, they occur in each of these books. And I don't know, there's a depth to her characters. I've learned so much from Polly over the books because she's been so generous with her time and explaining her process to me. I've just generally about how picture books work. She's been a, a teacher as well as a friend in that respect. Mm. And definitely, I remember going to an exhibition by Dick Bruner and it said it had a, it had a sketch that he'd done of Miffy and you could see all the different, he'd tried lots of different positions for a single tier. And then he'd worked out where the saddest place was to place the tier. And Polly really reminds me of that approach that she draws the characters hundreds of times before she works out who they are. And then, you know, many more times to work out how Hedgehog can look progressively <laughs> sadder on each page and break your heart even more. And I think the amount of thought that goes into everything she does has been really amazing. Excellent. Let's talk briefly about the other um, series that I mentioned, the ones with Ross Collins. These seem to be the most complicated of the three series that we're uh, looking at here. There's lots of nods to the world of Bond and uh, maybe even a little bit of Clouseau in there with your inspector. And the image and text was so integrated, the storytelling, that I couldn't imagine that it was a text and then illustration was added afterwards but you were telling me it's a little different to that <laughs> yeah definitely well first of all I should say I've got Hachette's lawyers in in mind when I say absolutely nothing to do with James Bond it's a generic secret agent that happens to maybe share some similarities <laughs> but uh yeah I mean so so that was written as a parody of the kind of secret agent genre and yeah definitely more aimed kind of slightly older than the hug and I think the amazing thing about Ross is um just how he constructs the the story both in that and penguin is even more complicated in terms of being quite agatha christie-esque and having so much it's almost kind of where picture books might meet graphic novels in terms of like the amount of complexity in some of the the spreads and really there was only so much i could put on the page and ross did a huge amount of work to make those stories hang together and make sense I mean, the idea of a secret agent who's an elephant. I mean, if there was any animal that is less likely to be able to sleuth around invisibly, it would be an elephant. So we get a lot of our humour from that. Definitely. Well, there's some, like, I keep a notebook and I write down, the main thing I spend my time doing is writing down all stupid ideas. And and there's some that just jump out. And as soon as 
I saw that on the page. It's just you realize it's a bit like those. Um, I feel like in the eighties and nineties, there was a lot more blockbuster films where the the idea for the film was in the title. You understand it entirely just from <laughs> from those two things that don't belong together being in the title. Tell me more about that notebook where you jot down your ideas. What does it look like? What sorts of things are in that? It is like myself. It's long and thin, and it's uh, it's battered and. I carry it in my pocket and it's full of mainly 99% bad ideas, but I'm a, I'm a big believer that you have to write the bad idea down for it to go away. And then, and also I read somewhere, another author said he was asked where uh, his ideas came from. And he said, um, I grow them in boxes. And I think the notebook is, is, is like that. You can write a bad idea down and then come back to it months or a year later and spot what's good about it. And maybe it meets, Maybe actually when you stick it next to another bad idea, they equal a good idea. And sometimes writing things down and then coming back gives you the perspective to see where they should be taken. And it lets your brain move on then as well to the next thing rather than it being Mm. there niggling at you. The bulk of my time, I would say, writing by far is spent with that notebook. And then once there's a good idea, like that secret agent elephant, I find if the idea is really strong, then the text can be very quick to write. And that maybe goes back to that point about the different tones of voice. I think it's much easier to maintain a unique tone of voice if you write things in one or two goes. I think if you keep on coming back to something and fiddling with it too much, not so much in terms of the editing that you might do with people further down the line, but in terms of getting it on getting it on the page in the first instance, if you can do that all in one go or all in two goes, then I think that's when you get you're more likely to get a, a really strong tone of voice. And if you come back a week later, you're in a different frame of mind and it won't you'll end up with something that doesn't it doesn't feel as singular <laughs> so I think that's a very pretentious way of talking about what, <laughs> what I do no I think it's fascinating I wonder do you ever share is it very private that notebook or do you ever share ideas as, as you're writing them down uh, I would rarely talk about them at that stage yeah I think things are quite vulnerable I think at that stage and the wrong facial expression from someone you tell them about could be the end of something that could have been good if you'd had a bit longer and so much of it's about bringing positivity to what you do at that stage to believe in them even if maybe deep down you don't quite believe in in order to get them off the ground and so I think Mm -hmm. I tend to be a bit more private at that stage unless I think something so stupid that it's I can't I like making people laugh and so if if Rachel's in the room and I think of something that's just so stupid I know it's going to make her laugh then I'll say it. There's some interesting reflections here in terms of children isn't isn't it? Because we expect them to share things really early on in their process. And here we are saying we've got ideas, we feel a bit vulnerable about them. We're not ready to share yet. And we have control of, over that as adults. Children can't always exercise the same control, but they may be experiencing the same feelings. That's re- I'd never thought about that. And that's really, um, that's very insightful. So I've got a, a boy who's just turned four, Bob, and Bob is not, he feels very shy about his drawings. And I think it's exactly what you're talking about because I'm there staring at it as he's doing it. I, don't, I haven't really thought about that, but I wouldn't expect the same the other way around, if you know what I mean. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. At what point do you, do you feel that you can share your work? Is it usually once the first draft is finished? Is that a good time? And who who's the first person to you know, hear your story? Is it your partner or is it your publisher (laughs) or someone else? 
it's a bit of a mix. I say the majority of the time it's Rachel will be will hear the first draft, and I really her opinion both as my best friend and as a teacher has just been the most important thing about all the books. And then sometimes she's busy and I'll share with James Catchpole first. He's the other person that I really, really trust. And he, as, as well as being an agent, he's very engaged in all the editing and spends a huge amount of time working with me on stuff. And they're both, what I would say about them is they're both very brutal and I encourage them to be really brutal and just be ready for that. And that's as much as it might hurt in the moment, that's what's made things good let's come and have a look now at your creative partnership with mark butavon who is so good at quirky stuff isn't he and he's just right for uh this latest book i am not an octopus and i'm going to share this well actually i'm going to ask you if you would read it for us i am not an octopus my name is terry i'm just a regular guy with a few extra arms who happens to love tuna Nothing to see here. I don't know why you're looking at me like that. Everyone knows octopuses live underwater. If I were an octopus, I'd be in the sea. Unless I were afraid of water, which I am absolutely not. Oh my goshness, water, help! I'm going to drown! I'm so afraid of H2O! Danger! Okay, perhaps I'm a little afraid of water. It's just so watery and wet and water-like. I bet being afraid of water would make life quite difficult for an octopus. Stuck on dry land, not being able to visit mum and dad, or see my octopus friends, or go to super octopus fantasy adventure world. Luckily, I'm not an octopus. I'd sure love to learn how to swim. Hang on. Do you think you could teach me if I was brave enough? Some privacy first, if you please. All right, I'm ready to learn. Do I keep my mouth open or shut? Should I try to sink to the bottom or float on the top? What do I do with my arms and legs? Which arm, which leg? Is it okay to pee just a little? I don't think I can do it. I'm so afraid. I think I might cry. Help! What do I do? You're supposed to be teaching me. I'm sinking. I'm sinking. I'm sinking. I'm swimming. I'm swimming. That's a good stop point, isn't it? Because that is the mark of moving to the second part of the story. I just want to ask you a couple of things about the voice of this octopus. There are a couple of really interesting things here. One is that he is... Unlike your other stories, he's talking directly to the reader. Yeah, that's so actually the the alphabet book with Mark Boussafont works in a similar in a similar way. And that's my favorite one to read out in schools. And it's the one that causes the most mayhem and, and probably makes the teachers laugh the most as well. And I think it's that idea of the unreliable narrator. I think kids love the fact that there's a like a dissonance between what is said and what what is shown and there's a kind of no, inherent naughtiness and misbehavior when a character is saying one thing and doing and the kids can see something else happening mm. and i think that kind of within a controlled environment that kind of disobedience and misbehavior is really is really funny i think that's that's why that decision was made i guess 
a little bit like that book, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus, Mo Willems. Exactly. Mm. And that, you know what, that's if you have the genius to to do that in like, there's probably less than a hundred words. And there's so few words in that book, but to have so much naughtiness. <laughs> yeah, just humour. Yeah, brilliant. So partly what it's doing, you see, I love books like this. I think partly what it's doing, it's breaking the fourth wall, isn't it? It's coming out and it's talking direct to the reader. And Mark's kind of mirrored that with the octopus who's quite often looking out of the page at the reader. And I think from a teaching point of view, these are great books to read aloud because you almost inhabit the book and become the character yourself. You're holding it there, but you are the octopus as you're reading it. So I don't know, it's like performance, like pantomime. Uh, yeah, completely agree. And that's that's why they're my favourite books to read, I think, because you, the kids are shouting at you, you know, the equivalent of it's behind you. You feel like you, exactly as you described, you are performing the book to them and you're mm-hmm. the one, you get to be that naughty character that's making them laugh rather than reading a, a book about a naughty character or about, okay, you are that person. Yeah, it completely. Definitely. Yeah. The other thing is that he slips, you know, this voice slips and he's talking about, I'm not an octopus. And then he starts talking about if he were an octopus, his family, I bet being afraid of water would make life quite difficult for an octopus. He suddenly starts talking about the octopus as though it's something else. Um, Stuck on dry land, not being able to visit my mum and dad, not its mum and dad. (laughs) Yeah, it gets kind of, he gets uh, misty eyed and wistful. at that bit yeah um hopefully that's funny but it kind of like with the humor it's often good if you can find a bit of emotion as well and then that, i think that makes the funny funnier and it makes the heartfelt more heartfelt if those when those two things sit together i think that's why wedding speeches are good because <laughs> they've got you know you want something heartfelt and something funny next to each other somehow they exaggerate each other so that's an attempt although it starts off very silly to kind of give the book a bit of a heart so that you you care about the character and you want him obviously reunited with his family I've got to ask you, where where did this, oh, look, I'm I'm slipping into that. Where did you get your ideas from? But <laughs> why an octopus? Where did that come from? <laughs> well, I think this is an example of the two kind of okay ideas equaling one good idea, hopefully. So I think, I think originally the book was, I was thinking, well, it'd be fun to write a book that taught kids how to swim or in which kids had to teach a character how to swim. And then I thought, well, what's the most interesting idea that kids would have to teach someone to swim and then I somehow it this octopus who who, who wasn't an octopus came, wandered in but it's almost they're almost two kind of mm. a, a character that's interesting and then that kind of swimming thing so it's probably those two things together so he does learn to swim and then the second half of the book the colors change actually you know we've got lots of bright blues in the swimming pool and then there's a sort of shift as we move to the second part of the story Maybe just tell us about that rather than read the next bit. Yeah, I mean, it's um, the genius of Mark Butevon. It's not how I was so surprised and amazed when I first saw his artwork. It's kind of very cinematic at the end, I think. But the book almost has different scenes and different colour palettes, like you say, that play out within it. The swimming pool is absolutely beautiful. And then as you get the kind of the grand finale happen it actually gets a lot moodier as the octopus goes towards the sea and it's in a way quite frightening dark clouds rolling in and big waves splashing along the pier and the angle that he's drawn the pier from makes it just feel so momentous and Mm -hmm. I think it gives the whole story a kind of 
epicness and gravitas that I never ever had on the page or even in my mind. You just taking it somewhere really brilliant. I think that's lovely. And, you know, these things are a creative partnership and your ideas will have sparked ideas in his head. And you coming back and seeing your story represented visually gives you an opportunity to see new things as well. And that's the joy of picture book creation when it's a a writer and an artist working separately. I mean, I love his underwater playground as well you know this he looks like he's really enjoyed putting this theme park together it's a bit of wish fulfillment there for children I think <laughs> yeah I mean the, the um fantasy adventure world's incredible kind of neon against black and it was the same with the alphabet book he crammed so much detail and every time I read it so Bob my little one really loves the octopus book he doesn't like all my books in fact he doesn't like very many of them <laughs> but he loves the octopus one and um i've read it so many times now even just reading the proofs to him and there's so many details like marks he's snuck in lots of the number eight is included all over the place i guess because the eight eight legs and it's snuck in like one of the jellyfish is eight shaped and they're just there it's one of those books and it's the same with the alphabet one even now when i read it i'm always spotting new things and new little details and jokes that he's added. Uh, very, Just very clever. I love that because a book like this is going to be read many times and you've got to have a gift to give, particularly the adult reader, <laughs> who's going to be experiencing the story many times with the same child who'll keep asking for that story. Yeah, hopefully that's there for everyone. So is picture book, uh, picture book writing... Is that the lens that you feel comfortable with? Or can you see yourself um, expanding your repertoire of publishing to short stories or longer fiction? Yeah, I'm, I'm desperate to. So I've just, about two weeks ago, I, I finished my, uh, I've been working in an office job, a day job, and I've just quit. And I'm doing the, the writing full time, which is really exciting. And my big aim this year is to try and write something longer. So yeah, fingers crossed. Well, you've got plenty of inspiration where you are on the beautiful island of Mauritius. I'd like to just thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner and giving me a glimpse into your writing life. Um, it's been a ball. Oh, thanks so much, Nikki. It was really, really good fun. I feel very flattered that you've had me on. So thank you. That was really, really good. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.